Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you so much for joining us on BC Podcast. Here's a message to encourage your heart this week. Well, it's good to be back at Bible Center, especially on this very special day today. It's a real joy and a privilege and an honor for me to be here. I would like to add my congratulations to Pastor John today for assuming the lead pastor here at Bible Center. And I would like to uh, also add my congratulations to you as a church for following the Lord's will, for seeking his face and for making this call to Pastor John. As I said when I was back here or here back in uh, July, uh, I think John is uniquely qualified to be a lead pastor and a lead pastor here. His varied experience in ministry, his giftedness, his understanding of our West Virginia culture, which can be somewhat unique, and his uh, love for Bible Center and his ministry here already uniquely position him for, uh, I believe, a long and God-blessed ministry here at Bible Center. And I know that's my prayer. I trust it's your prayer as well. I'm sure it is. I exhort you today to love him and his family. I would challenge you to support him and his ministry and the vision he will cast for Bible Center for the future days and years. And I would also encourage you to pray for him. Now, I know you pray, trust you pray for all of your staff, all of your pastors and ministry staff here at Bible Center But in a fresh and new way, maybe a more focused way, I would challenge you to pray for John and his new role in ministry here. Um, Satan loves to disrupt the church. Uh, He doesn't like to see God's blessing on God's people. And he attacks all of God's servants, but there is a special sense in which he would love to see the lead shepherd, the lead pastor, embroiled in attacks. And so pray in a very focused way that God will deliver John from that, that he will bless this church through his ministry. And uh, if you would allow me to do this, uh, I would like to just lead us in another prayer of consecration to God at this point. Let's bow together. Father, we are so grateful to you for this special day. We thank you, Father, for all of the uh, prayer and the seeking of your face all of the energy and work that has gone into this day and this celebration of a new chapter in the life and history of Bible Center Church. We are grateful to you. We praise you from whom all good and perfect gifts come. We recognize, Father, that you are sovereign over all things, certainly the head of this church, the head of your church, and we trust in your leadership and your wisdom Father, we do pray in a special way for John and Emily and their family. We would ask, Father, that you would hedge them about and surround them with your sufficient grace, with your strength and wisdom, with peace and vision and power to serve you well. And Lord, we look forward to the best days of Bible Center being ahead. We thank you. We cry out to you because we need you. And we pray, Father, for your hand of blessing to rest upon this church and upon Pastor John. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, what do you think of when you think of the word fellowship? Maybe you think of eating together. You know, a lot of churches have a large room where they they gather for meals, 
And they call that, many of them do, a fellowship hall, as though that produces fellowship. Maybe you think of uh, doing some kind of activity together, a round of golf, and you say, wow, we had great fellowship today, an aerobics class, and you say, wow, we had a great fellowship together. Or maybe you think of uh, doing ministry together, and that is your fellowship with one another. Maybe you think of uh, talking with, with folks after the service out in the fireplace area. While all of those activities may provide a venue for fellowship, they certainly do not guarantee that fellowship actually happens. You know, the Bible talks about fellowship a lot, and the word that is translated fellowship in our English versions is the word koinonia. And koinonia requires not just eating together, doing activities together, ministering together. Koinonia requires a deeper sharing of our lives where we share our blessings, but also we share our struggles. We share our weaknesses and sins, our joys and triumphs. We really do life together and share life together. That's not possible in a group of 1,500 people. It's not possible in a group of 800. It's not possible in a group of 100. There has to be a smaller gathering, a close-knit group of people that you really get to know and you can live out the one another's. I was so interested to hear John read the passage from Romans 12 earlier because it mentions two of those one another's that we fulfill for each other. There are lots of them in the Bible, some 16 different ones that occur like 58 times altogether in the New Testament, but we are to serve one another, love one another, pray for one another, challenge one another, warn one another, and those kind of one another experiences can only happen in a smaller group of close-knit believers. We're gonna be in 1 John today, 1 John chapter one, there are lots of different ideas as to what the theme of the book of 1 John is. Some say it's joy, and John does say in chapter 1, verse 4, I write these things unto you that our joy may be complete. Some say it's really uh, a kind of a test of the assurance of salvation, of the reality of our faith in Christ. And John does say in chapter 5 and verse 13 that he's written these things to us so that we can know for sure that we have eternal life. But I think a good case can be made also for the fact that a major theme in the book of 1 John is fellowship. In fact, that word occurs four times in the first chapter alone. So fellowship is what we are talking about today. Chapter one of 1 John really is kind of a primer on fellowship, and thus the title of the message today, Fellowship 101. I, I thought about uh, entitling the message after so many of the books that come out. For those of us who need to learn things, Fellowship for Dummies, but I thought, no, that's not appropriate in a church, especially in a church as well-taught as Bible Center. So Fellowship 101, it'll have to be today, okay? We're gonna talk about some of the basics of fellowship. In 1 John, we find the basics of sharing life together in a community of believers. And I think in the first chapter, what John deals with in giving us this primer on fellowship is basically to to uh, summarize in two statements what he's going to say. I'd like to do that this morning. So the first statement that covers what John is going to tell us about fellowship is this. The foundation of our fellowship is a relationship with God. 
That's the foundation for our fellowship together. It's a relationship with God. He'll cover that in the first four verses. And he begins by making it clear that that relationship, that relationship with God is made possible only through Christ. Now that's an emphasis also in John's gospel. The well-known verse, John 14 and verse six, tells us Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father. No one has a relationship with God. No one gets to heaven to spend eternity with God except through Christ. Now, in 1 John chapter 1, in the first four verses, John is going to describe for us how God did that, how God made that possible for Jesus to be the way to the Father. What he's going to explain for us is something we call the incarnation. Now, that word, a theological term, simply means in flesh. The incarnation is then the fact that the Son of God, who had existed forever in eternity past, came to this earth, took on a human body so that he might give that body in death for us as our Savior. That's, that's the incarnation. I want you to see in the first three verses how John describes that. So 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We're gonna stop there for the moment. I want you to see how John describes for us how Jesus became one of us, became man so that he might die for us. Look at the terms he uses. He talks about Jesus being from the beginning. Obviously, a reference to Genesis 1.1, even John 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.1 says, in the beginning, the word was with God. The word was God. The word was with God in the beginning. So in the beginning refers to the eternity past. And what John is saying is that Jesus did not begin his life in the manger in Bethlehem or when he was conceived in the womb of Mary. He had existed forever in eternity past. So that which was from the beginning, and then notice he says, he uses these terms of, of physical contact. He says, we've heard him, we've seen him with our eyes, we've looked at him, our hands have touched him. Verse three, we've seen and heard. What he's saying is that Jesus, who was from eternity past with the Father as God in heaven, took on a human body. He, he crashed in to time and space in the reality of a human body. And then he says about him that he was called the Word. That's a term he also uses in his gospel. The Word simply means Jesus is the one through whom God expresses himself. We express ourselves through words. God expressed himself in words, in the living word, the Bible, but also in the living word, Jesus, his son. 
There are lots of verses that tell us this in Hebrews and the Gospel of John that tell us that Jesus manifested the Father. And then, of course, John here says that he was the Word of life. Literally, the Word who is life. The Word in whom life is found. And John will make this even more clear when he states it so emphatically in chapter 5 and verses 11 and 12 of this epistle when he says this, and this is the testimony. This is what I've been writing about. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Now, here it is, plain and simple. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So you see, the Son of God, Jesus, and life, eternal life, are one and the same. Eternal life comes through Christ. Now, John will tell us that he appeared. He mentions that twice in verse 3. So the, the Word, who is life, appeared. This, this eternal life from the Father comes through a real historical person, Jesus Christ. Uh, fascinating to me, and it would be a good study for you sometime to to do some cross-referencing with 1 John 1 and John chapter 1 because all of those basic truths I've just mentioned are also fleshed out in even more detail in John's gospel, chapter 1. There's a beautiful uh, networking of how those two passages work together. Now, John will tell us a little bit later in his book why Jesus came. Here he's describing how he came and that he really did come in a real human body, but later he'll explain more why. For instance, in chapter 4 and verse 10, John will tell us this. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, here it is, and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So why did Jesus, the one who was in the beginning, come to this planet in a human body? Why did he come? He came to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That word atoning sacrifice, just one word in the original language, literally means that he would pay the penalty for our sin through his death and thus satisfy the just demands of a holy God that our sin be punished. Jesus would do that through his death on the cross, taking our place, becoming a substitute for us so that he might pay the penalty for our sin. That's why he came. Now, before we leave these first three verses, I think it's important for us to note once again the experiential terms that John uses. John says, when the word who was from the beginning took on human flesh, notice he says, we heard him, we saw him, we, we gazed at him, our hands touched him, we've seen him and heard him. All of those terms are used in those first three verses. And there's a reason for that. There's a theological reason for it. There was an early heresy, an early false teaching in the church, which was just beginning to come into play when John wrote this book in the last part, the last decade of the first century A.D., it would later become called Gnosticism, but the idea of this was taken from Greek philosophy, and the idea basically was all material stuff is evil. Only that which is spirit, ethereal, immaterial is good. Now, God is good because he's a spirit, but certainly Jesus would have contaminated himself if he had a literal physical body. He would have been evil, and so this group taught 
that Jesus did not have a literal physical body, that he either just appeared like one or something else like that. But he didn't have a literal, they denied his humanity. Interestingly enough, the first false teaching about the person of Christ was not to deny his deity, it was to deny his humanity. And so John is countering that here. Listen, I want you to know, we actually heard him. We saw him. We touched him. We know that he was real. He was a real person in a real human body. But there's something deeper here also, and that is John's talking about being close to him. John's talking about actually interacting with him in a very personal way. He's talking about we did life together. You know, we caught fish together so we could have lunch. We did things together. We, we were together, and that is going to form the basis for our fellowship. So the foundation for our fellowship is a relationship with God, and that relationship with God is made possible only through Christ. But John will go on to say in verses 3 and 4 that that relationship with God provides the basis for our fellowship with each other. Look again, verse three, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Here we're introduced for the first time to this word fellowship, that word Koinonia, it, it occurs some 60 times in the New Testament. And it's translated in, in various ways. Sometimes it's translated fellowship, sometimes communion, sometimes partnership, sometimes sharing as sharing life. What he's talking about with our fellowship is that our sharing in the eternal life that he's talked about in the first three verses, our sharing in that eternal life given to us by the Father, made possible through Christ coming to die for us, that sharing in common life is something we have together. That sharing in eternal life is something we have in common. We all share that same eternal life. And that provides the basis then for a sharing of life together. But that's not just a theological truth. I love the way that Gary Burge in his excellent NIV application commentary on 1 John fleshes this out for us. He says, this is the crux of John's thought and the purpose of his writing. Christian community is not some passing association of people who share common sympathies for a cause, nor is it an academy where an intellectual consensus about God is discovered. It cannot be so superficial. Christian community is partnership and experience. It is com the common living of people who have a shared experience of Jesus Christ. They talk about this experience. They urge each other to grow more deeply in it. And they discover that through it, they begin to build a life together unlike any life shared in the world. I love that. That really gets to the essence of what John is talking about. Our sharing of eternal life is a common bond that brings us together to be able to share more deeply about life. And it makes our joy complete, John says. What joy we have in knowing and having the eternal life, the salvation that is provided through Christ, 
what joy we have because we share this life together. And together it produces growth in Christ. It produces more Christ-likeness as we share and live life together. And that joy will be absolutely complete when we see him as he is and we are with him in heaven and the impediment of sin that we all struggle with is gone forever. Then our joy will surely be complete. I got a little taste of this kind of joy. I've had tastes of it a lot of times, but I, I remember one especially that just sticks out to me. Back in 2006, I had the privilege of teaching a two-week uh, module in a Bible institute in Venezuela. And the missionary on one of the weekends I was there took me to a neighboring uh, town, smaller town. We were in a city of about a million and a half people, but he took, took me to a smaller town to preach in a church. Now, this church had never had anyone from America there. Now, this is 2006. I don't know if you remember those days. It was the height of tension between Venezuela and the United States. In fact, just about a week before I went to Venezuela, the president of Venezuela had spoken to the United Nations and called President Bush the devil. So there was a lot of tension between our two countries. In fact, the State Department was saying Americans should not visit Venezuela. There'd been some kidnappings of America. There was a lot of ill will toward Americans uh, in Venezuela. So this pastor was really nervous. He'd never had an American there except for the missionary who was more Venezuelan than he was American by this point. And he'd certainly never had an American preach in his pulpit and he'd never had anyone there who had to preach with a translator. And so I could tell he was, he was really on edge. And uh, he didn't even really speak to me, didn't greet me at all. And the missionary explained what was going on and that he was really nervous about this service. The only reason he allowed it to happen was because he knew and had confidence in the missionary. So I got up when I was introduced and I started preaching. And I wasn't long into the message on the, the coming of Christ to take us home, to be with him. I wasn't long into that message and I realized something Something special's happening here. You know, I, I've preached in a number of different countries with a number of different translators of different languages, and sometimes it just doesn't go well. I mean, it, it, the old saying is, do you have an interpreter or do you have an interrupter? And sometimes it's more like an interrupter than an interpreter, and it seems like you're not really able to get out what you want, and he's jumping in, and, and, but it wasn't that way that day. Uh, I, would, I would complete a thought and, the mission, and I was going to stop, and the missionary sensed it, and he would jump right in without any hesitation, straight into Spanish. His gestures were mirroring mine. His voice intensity and volume was mirroring mine. It's like God had welded the two of us together to, to get that message out, and there was just a hush over the congregation that day. And I think the pastor sensed it too, because at the end, he gave an altar call, an invitation time for people to respond to the message. And several people came and knelt to pray. Two people trusted Jesus as their savior that day, publicly made confession of their faith. One of them was a man the church had prayed for for years. After the service, I, I uh, walked back down and, and uh, the pastor came running over to me and threw his arms around me, gave me a big bear hug. And it's like in that moment, all of the dissimilarities between us, all of the cultural tension, all of the ethnic tension, all of the political tension was gone. Why? 
because we realized we shared a bond that supersedes all of those kinds of differences. And that is we both had eternal life in Christ and we were rejoicing to see somebody else embrace that eternal life. So across political divides, language divides, cultural, ethnic divides, our bond in Christ of sharing eternal life brings us close together and gives us joy. That's what John's talking about here in these verses. The foundation for our fellowship is a relationship with God. But then John goes on, John goes on to explain in verses five through 10 that the focus of our fellowship is godly living. Now, John will use an expression in these verses. It occurs in verse seven. We'll get to it in a moment. He'll use an expression called walking in the light to express what I'm gonna call godly living. So it's, under, it's, it's important for us, if we're gonna understand what he's saying, to understand what walking in the light means. So what does walking in the light mean? Well, verse five gives us a good hint. Look at verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. This contrast between light and darkness is first of all used to describe the character and the essence of God. God is light, there's no darkness in him. And so it becomes pretty clear that when he says God is light, he's talking about the splendor and the glory of God that is manifested in his absolute purity, his infinite holiness. And the opposite of that infinite holiness is darkness or what? Evil and sin. So you can actually read the verse that way. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is holy. In him there is no sin at all. There's a common use of this kind of contrast throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Another interesting study for you to follow sometime and do on your own may be the, the contrast between light and darkness throughout the Bible. Just a couple of quick examples that I want to throw in. One is in uh, John's gospel itself where John in Jesus 3 says, I came to give light. Jesus came to give light, but men prefer darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil, he says, right? So there's the sin, the darkness, as opposed to the light or holiness walking with God. Paul also uses that contrast. For instance, in Ephesians 5, when he says to the Ephesian believers, you used to be walking in darkness. That was your life of sin before you came to Christ. But now he says, you are children of light, so walk as children of light and don't engage in the acts of darkness, he says, but rather reprove them. So that contrast is often used in the Bible. Light, holiness, darkness, sin, and evil. So what John does, given that background, is to show us why walking in the light is so important. In verses six through 10, he's gonna give us three reasons why walking in the light is so important, or we might say living a godly life, living a holy life is so important. The first reason is it leads to a life of integrity rather than deception. Look at verse six. 
If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Pretty clear, pretty simple, isn't it? If we claim to have fellowship with God, in other words, we are sharing our life with him. If we claim to be in that fellowship with him, but we're actually living in darkness, we're living a lifestyle of sin, then we're living a lie. We are living deceptively. We are living in a way that is a contradiction. Here's the problem. Even as believers, we can get accustomed to the darkness. You know what it's like when you cut the last light out in your bedroom before you crawl in bed? And it, it seems like, where, where's the bed? And you stumble over something, and you, it, it's so dark. And you close your eyes, and then after a few moments, you open them, and you think, whoa, wait a second, did I leave a light on somewhere? It's gotten, there's some light in here now. And, and it seems like light's coming from outside and from somewhere else in the room or the house. What's happened is your eyes have adjusted to the darkness. The same thing happens with spiritual darkness. We can get accustomed to it. We can adjust to it so that we begin to think, you know, that doesn't look so dark. That's not really that bad. That's not going to harm me. But folks, we need to remember that any and every sin, no matter how great or small we may think it is, any sin is infinite darkness, absolute darkness to God, and it is incompatible with saying we have fellowship with him. So John says one of the reasons why it's so important to walk in the light, to live a godly, godly life, is it leads to a life of integrity rather than deception. Second reason, it leads to genuine community. Genuine community with other believers. Look at verse seven. But if we walk in the light, live a godly life, if we do that, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. I'm gonna stop right there for now. It's interesting that he would say that. You would almost expect that he would say, if we walk in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with him because the opposite of it was in what we saw in, in verse five and six. But no, the first thing he says is, if we walk in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. You know, sin does something to us in regard to our fellowship with other believers, the sharing of that common life and the joy that comes from that. Sin, its result in our lives is that it keeps us away from other believers. It makes us uncomfortable around other believers. It makes it awkward to be around the family of God when we know inwardly we're living a life of deception. So it makes it very awkward and uncomfortable. I, I would challenge you, for those of you who have friends, uh, fellow believers in this congregation, and maybe you're, you're starting to miss them. They haven't been here in a while. You, you know them. Don't call a pastor and say, go visit this person. You go, you go see them and just see how they're doing. Make sure that things are okay spiritually because one of the first signs of moving away from the fellowship of believers is sin in our lives. The darkness 
makes it awkward to be around other believers. But walking in the light leads to genuine community. It fuels our desire to have fellowship with other believers. So walking in the light leads to a life of transparency and integrity rather than deception. It also leads to genuine community. Third reason John says it's so important to walk in the light is it leads to spiritual cleansing. We stopped in the middle of verse seven, but the end of the verse says, here's another result of walking in the light and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. In other words, if it's my heart desire and my ambition to walk in the light, if, if really it is my desire to deal with sin and walk in a, a godly way with my Lord, then the Bible says here that I will experience the cleansing that continually flows from the work that Christ did on the cross to purify me, to cleanse me from the defilement of sin. And so that blessing of the continual cleansing of Christ offered because of what he did on the cross is ours when we are walking in the light. But it means we must deal honestly with sin. We must deal in reality with sin and not try to sugarcoat it, cover it up, deny it, whatever. And so that's what John does next. In verses eight through 10, he gives us two misconceptions about sin and then the one only proper way to deal with sin. So let's look quickly at those two misconceptions about sin. The first one is in verse eight. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now notice the first part of the verse, if we claim to be without sin. Sin, singular, it's talking about the principle of sin, really talking about our nature, our sin nature. So what he's saying here, this first misconception is that if I say, and this is the way it could be best put, I am no longer a sinner. In other words, I don't have a sin nature anymore. My sin nature has been eradicated. There are groups that teach that, but the Bible says very plainly here, if we claim to be without a sin nature any longer, I'm no longer a sinner, then we're only deceiving ourselves. I mean, come on, let's be honest. We all know that we still say things that are wrong, do things that are wrong, think things that are wrong, have wrong attitudes at times. There's none of us that evidences the fact that there's no longer any sin nature around to bother us anymore, if we're honest. So the only way to make this claim, the Bible says, is self-deception and dishonesty. We have to convince ourselves that I'm not the one really responsible for what I said or did. That wasn't really me. I don't have that in me anymore. It must have been a personality disorder or it must have been a social dysfunction, or we begin to play the blame game. Well, you know, it's my parents' fault, it's my heredity, or it was my environment, where, where I was, where my place where I lived, the group of people that were my neighbors, it was my environment, or it was something beyond my control, some factor beyond my control. Or sometimes, in order to play this game of deceiving ourselves, 
we just focus on the sins of other people and don't even think about our own. There was a particular neighborhood uh, that had a problem with speeding through the, the streets of that calm subdivision. It's not the neighborhood you're thinking of, it's another one. Uh, but so the, the residents of this neighborhood decided to petition the police that they would uh, do better enforcement in the area and ticket people who were speeding through their quiet subdivision. And so the police said, that's a good idea, we'll do that. So they put a couple of patrol cars close and, and within a couple of days, they pulled over five people and gave them a ticket and all five of those people were fuming mad. You know why? All five of them had signed that petition. Isn't that the way we are? It's so easy to think, it's those other people that have the problem. It's not me. I don't have a problem. The Bible says if we say, I no longer sin, or I am not a, no longer a sinner, then the problem's with us. We're deceiving ourselves. We're not being honest. But the second deception or misconception about sin could be said, said this way, I no longer sin. It's in verse 10. I no longer sin. If we claim we have not sinned, notice the difference. Verse eight is we have no sin. There's no sin nature yet remaining in us. Verse 10 is talking about acts of sin though. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. God makes it very plain, very clear that there's nobody who can make this claim. So if you make this claim, I no longer sin. I've reached a stage of sinless perfection. Then you know what you're doing? This is serious stuff. You're calling God a liar. That's pretty serious. Real quickly, we're gonna run through some verses just to give you the force of what God says. First Kings chapter eight and verse 46. This is where Solomon is dedicating the temple. So Solomon's actually saying this, but it's recorded by inspiration in the Bible, so God says it. This is what God says, when they, people of Israel, sin against you, notice this, for there is no one who does not sin. Then he talks about the consequences of that sin. God says there is no one who does not sin. In Psalm 14, three, this is what God says. All have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. In Proverbs 20, verse nine, this is what God says. Who can say, I have kept my heart pure. I am clean and without sin. In Ecclesiastes seven twenty, this is what God says. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. That's pretty clear. This is what God says in Isaiah 53 and verse six, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In Romans 3.23, this is what God says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if you say, I no longer sin, who's right? You or God, you're calling God a liar. That is serious stuff. So what's the right way to deal with sin? What's the only proper way to deal with sin? Well-known verse, verse nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The only proper way to deal with our sin is confession. 
The word is a compound word made up of two words, one of which means the same and the other which is the verb to speak or to say. So literally, confession, the word confess means to say the same thing. And obviously, it's to say the same thing God says about our sin. So to confess our sin, we have to first of all know what God says, right? If we're gonna say the same thing God says about our sin, we gotta know what God says about our sin. So this requires that we allow the word of God to expose our hearts and our sin. And then it secondly requires that we agree with God's assessment about our sin. Yes, God, you've told me in your word that this kind of lifestyle is wrong, it's sinful. This kind of thinking, this kind of attitude, this kind of speech is wrong. And so Lord, I agree, you're right, I have sinned. That's confession. And notice what God's response is. If we confess our sins, the Bible says he will forgive us. Literally means to release a debt. He's not gonna hold anything against us. There's not even any reason for chastening or discipline anymore. All of that's lifted and he purifies us. Again, that cleansing work that flows from the work Jesus did on the cross is ours to wash away the defilement of any sin we've committed. And it's interesting that John says he's faithful to do that and he's just to do that. He's faithful because of who he is. He's faithful to all of his promises and he is just to forgive us. It's not like, well, that wasn't so bad. I'll just sweep that one under the rug. We'll forget about it, okay? No, God is just to forgive us our sin because the penalty for that sin has already been paid by his son, Jesus. And so as Romans 3, 24 says, God is just and the justifier of them who believe in Jesus. He's right to forgive our sin. It's not like he's doing something kind of under the table. He's right because that sin's already been paid for by Jesus. So here's here's what we're saying. Here's what John is saying. Fellowship 101. The foundation for our fellowship is a relationship with God which can only come through Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus left heaven to take on a human body so that he could give that body in death to pay for our sins so that we might have that shared common life. And that is the basis for our fellowship, our unity and togetherness and sharing life as fellow believers. Foundation of our fellowship is our relationship with God. The focus of our fellowship, in other words, what we are to focus on as a result of our shared life together is walking in the light, living godly lives, living in obedience to scripture, being sensitive to him, responding to him when he speaks to us and deals with us. That's what he wants us to do. Here's the problem. The problem is every one of us in this room and every believer on planet earth, every believer that's ever lived has a default mode of dealing with sin. It is our default mode, it is our tendency to hide and to deceive others about how we're living. That's, we got it from Adam, remember? Adam, first thing he did when he recognized he was a sinner, tried to hide the coverings, and then he hid from God when God came back to the garden to fellowship with him, he hid. And then when God finally challenged him about his sin, what did he do? He played the blame game, deception. You know, this woman you gave me, really it's your fault, God, and the woman's fault. And Eve just passed the buck right along. This serpent, you know, it was his fault. So we all have a tendency to do that. 
So we need help. I need help. You need help. You know where that help comes from? Fellow believers. That's the common life we share together. We need to get with a group of people that we can get to know so well that we're not afraid to say, I'm struggling with this in my thought life. I'm struggling with this in my speech. But I had a great week this week. God really blessed me, gave me victory. I want to share those blessings with you as well. Remember, we need people who will challenge us to walk in the light. Weight loss groups understand that that kind of accountability is needed, right? Recovery groups understand that that kind of accountability is needed for success. And it's true of the spiritual life as well. All of us need that kind of accountability so that we can be helped in our walking in the light to walk closer to the Lord. Again, remember, that can't really happen in a group like this. This is a one-way communication type of thing. This is preaching. You can't really do the one another's sitting here this morning, maybe a couple of them, encouraging and that kind of thing, but you really have to get in with a group of people that you really know and, and you really get to share your life with and do life together. So here's the point. Spiritual transformation happens best when we share our lives with a small group of believers. That's the essence of what John is saying in 1 John 1. Spiritual transformation happens best when we share our lives with a small group of fellow believers. So what Pastor Mike and Pastor John have communicated to me, these two weeks are really a focus leading into the fall to get us to think seriously about we need to be in a group smaller than this to be able to share our lives with some people that we get to know because that is when spiritual transformation happens best. So let's pray that God will bless and prosper those efforts. Father, thank you for your word. We know that your word gives us everything we need for life and godliness. And certainly it describes the importance of meeting with other believers to share our lives together. When we're hurting, others hurt. When we're rejoicing, others rejoice with us. When we weep, when we struggle, when we fail, others enter into that with us. When we, when we laugh and we rejoice in your blessings, others share that with us. Lord, I pray that we would all see the benefit, the blessing of being with believers we can share our lives with, have great fellowship with. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com and give us a follow on all platforms at Bible Center. 